This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Welcome, folks. It's another episode of A Sunday Kind of Love, the laughter, humor, and awkward moments episode. I'm Maya Tan, and I've got Tasha Fusil with me today, as always, on today's show. We believe laughter is the best way to get your six-pack abs, and we hear it cures headaches too. So we put pins on the KL map to highlight where to get your dose of laughs. On Couch Potatoes, Christina Oro reads from books to tickle your funny bone, and Tasha Fusil speaks to various folks to help you guide that awkward social moment to a happy ending. First on our list, where to get your funny in the sunny city of KL. Well, actually, it's been quite hazy and it rains a lot these days. Well, all the more reason why you should sneak indoors to get some laughs. If there's one thing that we can appreciate almost as much as our local cuisine, it's our local comedy scene. But back in the day, we'd go to the Bangsa Actor Studio to get our lols with shows like Act Olympics, which featured stand-up and improv comedy from heavyweights like Harith Iskandar, Aflin Chauki and Douglas Lim. Um, you can still look out for Act Olympics, except they've probably changed venue now that the theatre doesn't exist anymore. Oh, so they do still do Act Olympics? They still do. Christina Oro, um, our couch potato, is definitely one person who organises um, Act Olympics. She produces it. The scene has really grown with more comedians now, with established comedians taking their acts onto international circuits and festivals. And a whole new generation of jokers like Kwa Jen Han and Jason Leong are joining the club. Poon Chi Ho, whether it's veterans of Malaysian comedy like Patrick Teo or amateurs looking to break into the scene, there are always shows to look forward to every week. So if you're up for a good laugh, if you're looking for something fun to do on a date, here are some spots to check out. So happening every Tuesday, One Mic Stand was one of the first weekly open mic nights for stand-up comedy in Malaysia. It's hosted by Kevin Jay and Rizal Van Gezel, who is also the resident comedian over at the Crack House Comedy Club, which we'll talk a bit about more later. Uh, so the One Mic Stand... I love the name One Mic Stand. I know, I love it. <laughs> it's so witty. It's a casual and low-key platform for up-and-coming comedians, as well as experienced storytellers to test the waters with their new material, and it also gives us a chance to experience comedy in its rawer form. Um, it takes place every Tuesday at Cabaret, Palm Square at Jaya 1, and tickets are priced at just 15 ringgit, so you can head over to pjlifearts.my for more details. Also happening over at PJ Life Arts is Charita Malam Jumaat, which is English for Friday Night Storytelling. <laughs> it's a night of uh, light-hearted tales and amusing anecdotes, all performed and presented to the audience in Malay. So Hisham Rice, Reza Mukmin, Izzy Fazlisham, Benji, Filza Azmi, Hari Macha Keshwaran, <laughs> Al-Hakim Hussein and Jonathan Atherton, who's actually a very well-known name uh, under the comedy club, will be sharing tales in the storytelling session. Strangely enough, Jurita Malam Jumaat doesn't happen on Fridays. <laughs> <laughs> it takes place twice a month on various dates up until December. I think Jurita Malam Jumaat must be like a riff on Malam Jumaat, which is really Thursday night, isn't it? Oh, really? Yeah, it's a Malay term. Um, oh. Apparently, you know, if you make the lovey-dovey with your wifey on Malam Jumaat, you get extra brownie points. Oh, really? And yeah. it doesn't always have to happen on a Thursday? Yep, Malam Jumaat refers to Thursday night. <laughs> so again, this is also happening at PJ Live Arts and you can visit pjlivearts.my for more information. 
So next up is Comedy Kau Kau, which is the newest monthly comedy show in Malaysia that opens up the stage to newcomers for open mic nights. So it's a lot of open mic nights happening, hmm. actually. Um, as well as the best comedy entertainers in the circuit with their resident MC and host, Jason Leong, who, I mean, is famous for being the doctor that moonlights as a comedian. This happens every month at the B over at Publica and you can check out facebook.com slash comedy cow cow so that's K-A-O K-A-O <laughs> to find out which jokers are lined up for the monthly shows. And there is the Crack House Comedy Club, Southeast Asia's first dedicated stand-up comedy club. It's the first in Malaysia to have a space that's set up for the sole purpose of presenting stand-up comedy. It's really booming, isn't it? Everyone wants to tell jokes and be laughed at. <laughs> it's a very cool and cosy setup over in Tamantun, where the walls are covered with some spirited graffiti. And they've got comics from Malaysia uh, coming in from around the region and internationally every week. So there are always shows to look forward to if you're a big fan of... Project Disco Baldi they've also performed there and uh, Shamin Othman has also done some solo shows there you might also want to look out for Aya there that's the Alcoholics Improv Anonymous uh, performances that the Project Disco Baldi team do and they have two regular weekly shows there's Open Crack every Sunday at 9pm at RM15 it's an open mic night at the Crack House and like the one mic stand at PJ Life Arts is a platform to source new talent so newbies regular and sometimes even visiting comedian friends take the stage to just go for it so if you're a budding comedian do get out there to Crack House Comedy Club yep. And then there's Hack the Crack, which happens every Wednesday at 9pm. The resident comedians Rizal Van Gezel and John Atherton get together with a host of regional comics on a night of purely unprepared, spontaneous and wacky improv. Apart from these weekly shows, there are also different festivals and performances happening each month in KL, so do check out websites like stagekl.com to find out what's happening. There's also the Comedy Club KL, which isn't a space or venue that holds shows, but they're the folks responsible for bringing the big boys of stand-up comedy like Russell Peters and Jeff Dunham to town. So you can like them on facebook.com forward slash comedy club KL to get regular updates on upcoming shows. Get your laughs on! Right after this on a Sunday kind of love, couch potato Christina Oro lends us her voice of molten gold to read from some books for some good humour, particularly if your favourite shows such as... Or... have ended or are in between seasons. But before that, this is They All Laughed by Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga. Don't go away, we'll be right back on A Sunny Kind of Love, BFM 89.9. They all laughed at Christopher Columbus when he said the world was round. They all laughed when Edison recorded sound. They all laughed at Wilbur and his brother when they said man could fly. Told Magoni Wireless was a pony It's, it's the, the same, same old cry. cry They laughed at me Warning you Said I was reaching For the moon But all you can You're listening to A Sunday Kind of Love, The Laughter, Humour and That Awkward Moment episode. I'm Maya Tan. Now up next, Christina Oro is on to share some books of great humour to delight you when you need a lift me up.
Fall season has begun, but we will inevitably mourn the death of a few of our favourite series or miss the ones that are taking a break. So, for fans of TV shows like Mad Men or How I Met Your Mother, here are some books to read if you miss those series. Um, for fans of Mad Men's funny parts, there's Thank You for Smoking by Christopher Buckley. It follows the story of Nick Naylor, the tobacco lobbyist, at the centre of Buckley's dark satire of white-collar office work at the end of the 20th century. So he is suave, confident, good at his job, situationally immoral, and when the story begins, he's headed for a crisis, much like our friend Don Draper. So paired with the 1969 feminist theory classic Sexual Politics by Kate Millett and the 1958 New York New Identity classic Breakfast at Tiffany's by Truman Capote, you'll get an appropriately kaleidoscopic sense of the inside of Matthew Weiner's head. And of course, Matthew Weiner is the creator of Mad Men. So I thought perhaps you could read us a passage. Sure. I always believe when I buy a book that um, the first page is really important. I always read the first page before I buy any book because if the first page gets me, mm-hmm. then it's got me. That's interesting. <laughs> what about you? Uh, well, uh, it reminds me of uh, creative writing 101 I did in first year of my BA honours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I did a writing class and they basically said, you know, writing your first page, uh, you might end up cutting away your very first paragraph because it's probably a load of <laughs> and, then, and then you find your second paragraph is actually your first paragraph. Right. That's a very interesting way of uh, looking at that. Nick Naylor had been called many things since becoming chief spokesman for the Academy of Tobacco Studies, but until now no one had actually compared him to Satan. The conference speaker, himself the recipient of munificent government grants for his unyielding holy war against the industry that supplies the coughing remnant of 55 million American smokers with their cherished guilty pleasure, was now pointing at the image projected onto the wall of the cavernous hotel ballroom. There were no horns or tail, he had a normal haircut, and looked like someone you might pass in the hallway but his skin was bright red as if he'd just gone swimming in nuclear reactor water and the eyes. The eyes were bright, alive, vibrantly pimpy. The caption was done in the distinctive cigarette pack typeface. Hysterica bold, they called it at the office. It said, warning, some people will say anything to sell cigarettes. I think that's great. (laughs) Will you read it? Uh, yeah, I think I would read it. Is this something that may have already been made into a movie? Um, it hasn't been, but he's written a number of other novels in the same vein. God is my broker. Uh, thank you for smoking, of course. Little Green Men. Uh, he's also written a couple of things called uh, to do with politics. The White House Mess, First Lady, Florence of Arabia. <laughs> I'm interested in that one. A Supreme Courtship. Uh, but he has a lot of... <laughs> Are you getting visuals? Yes. I think I, I love his puns. I love the way he sets up his, um, his little descriptions. Yeah, I love that analogy with Satan. <laughs> yeah, but what, what do you think we love so much about Mad Men? For me, of course, the visuals are amazing, but it's also... You know, it's kind of shocking in the fact that it's it's retro and, and you think, well, some of the retro things, when we look back on it, are kind of shocking, like smoking when you're pregnant and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. But and just the littering. That, yeah, and also the um, complete moral depravity that seems to be ongoing in this beautiful facade. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think that's an interesting uh, dynamic. Mm-hmm. And also right from the start, you know, you see this animation of Don Draper's shadow or silhouette mm-hmm. and he's falling off a building 
Mm-hmm. So you know it's it's his downfall, and you you're really interested in seeing how that happens, and of course I just love all yeah as you say the visuals. The production design is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, even the costumes. Uh, I've I've followed um, numerous fashion blogs where they follow the character's development, and what so if something happens at a key event, for example, you know how they start to dress and how they they their their color palette what it's like and why those wow. choices choices were made by the production people something like this lends itself to 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 that because it's very highly stylized and you can afford to do that without looking overly unnatural mm-hmm. um, and i think it was also a time of possibilities they were just you know on the verge of the supercomputer and you know just before the big blossoming of IBM right uh, of computing and there were just so many possibilities very soon after the war the depression and still probably I'm not sure about the timeline but quite soon after McCarthyism and the idea that uh, communism and you know all that you know anti-Russia sentiment and all that kind of stuff and uh, people starting to believe in a freedom and security mm-hmm. and buying into the idea of capitalism and consumerism. and It was uh, also the sexual revolution the end of the yes. 60s. Yeah. Okay, well, anyway, next on the list, also sticking with New York, fans of How I Met Your Mother, R.I.P., <laughs> can read The Best of Everything by Rona Jeff. Fans of Sex and the City also might get a kick out of this one. Okay, so this is the first paragraph from the best of everything. You see them every morning at a quarter to nine, rushing out of the moor of the subway tunnel, filing out of Grand Central Station, crossing Lexington and Park and Madison and Fifth Avenues, the hundreds and hundreds of girls. Some of them look eager and some look resentful and some of them look as if they haven't left their beds yet. Some of them have been up since 6.30 in the morning, the ones who commute from Brooklyn and Yonkers and New Jersey and Staten Island and Connecticut. They carry the morning newspapers and overstuffed handbags. Some of them are wearing pink or chartreuse fuzzy overcoats and five-year-old ankle straps shoes and have their hair up in pin curls underneath kerchiefs. Some of them are wearing the chic black suits, maybe last year's, but who can tell? and kid gloves and are carrying their lunches in violet-sprigged Bonwit Teller paper bags. None of them has enough money. It's interesting. <laughs> this one was written in 1958. It's like a, a, a 19... pay to the working girl. Mm. And in 1959, they made a movie. All right. Yep, it starred Hope Lang, Diane Baker, Susie Parker, Stephen Boyd, Louis Jordan, Robert Evans and Joan Crawford. Unfortunately, that's the only name I recognise. <laughs> Anyway, the movie relates to the professional careers and private lives of three women who share a small apartment in New York City and work together in a paperback publishing firm. So maybe it's not so much How I Met Your Mother, but really more Sex and the City. Yeah, a bit more about how living in, in New York is. Uh, what were some of the visuals you got from reading that passage? Uh, definitely, uh, it just reminded me of one of the scenes from Sweet Charity, I think, when... Uh Shirley MacLaine is walking through town. She's a taxi dancer at a dance hall with her heart tattooed on her arm. And then she gets used by her boyfriend who steals her handbag and pushes her into the lake. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, speaking of friends, sex in the city, and girls, girls is on a hiatus right now. Mm-hmm. How to be a woman by Caitlin Moran comes highly recommended. British writer Caitlin Moran, though, in this hilarious memoir of her life as an underinformed Catholic teenager going through puberty and gradually evolving into a music journalist mother and fu feminist, gives them a run for their money. When was this book written? This book was published in Great Britain in 2011. Wolverhampton, April 5th, 1988. Here I am on my 13th birthday. I'm running. I'm running from the yobs. Boy! Jippo! Boy! I'm running from the yobs in the playground by our house. It's a typical playground of Britain in the late 80s. There's no such thing as safety surfaces, ergonomic design, or indeed slats on the benches. Everything's made of concrete, broken bottles, and weeds. As I run, I'm totally alone. I can feel the breath in my throat catching like vomit. I've seen nature documentaries like this before. I can see what's happening here. My role is clearly that of weak antelope separated from the pack. The yobs are the lions. I know this never really ends well for the antelope. Soon my role will turn into a new one. That of lunch. Yeah, pikey! I'm wearing Wellington boots, National Service health glasses that make me look like Alan Bennett, and my dad's Withnall-style army coat, I do not admit, look very feminine. Diana, Princess of Wales, is feminine. Kylie Minogue is feminine. I am femi-nun. <laughs> that's, that's great. Definitely, I would read that because it's sassy. It's sassy and it's quite refreshing also. It's not the kind of stuff that we get to see on TV, for example. Yeah, and I love that there's a confident voice, but there's a lot of like uh, inherently, you know, very low self-esteem. Hmm. Caitlin Moran is actually an English broadcaster, a TV critic and columnist at The Times where she writes three columns a week, one for the Saturday magazine, a TV review column, and the satirical Friday column, Celebrity Watch. She's written a couple of books as well, The Chronicles of Narmo in 92, How to Be a Woman in 2011, Anthology, <laughs> and How to Build a Girl in 2014. So it should be interesting to see what she has to say. She wrote this in 2011 and How to Build a Girl was just released actually on Kindle uh, this just this September. And this is what Lena Dunham says, I have so much love for Caitlin Moran. This time it's about Johanna Morrigan who's 14. She's shamed herself so badly on local TV that she decides that there's no point in being Johanna anymore and reinvents herself herself as Dolly Wilde, fast-talking, <laughs> hard-drinking, gothic hero and full-time lady sex adventurer. And it's in 1990. Should be quite interesting. How to build a girl. I am lying in bed next to my brother, Lupin. He is six years old. He's asleep. I'm 14. I'm not asleep. I'm masturbating. I look at my brother and think nobly. This is what he would want. He would want me to be happy. After all, he loves me. He wouldn't want me to be stressed. And I love him. Although I must stop thinking about him while I'm masturbating. <laughs> okay, I like this book too. <laughs> this reminds me of uh, Adrian... Adrian Mole? Yeah. Wolverhampton. <laughs> I remember Wolverhampton because of Adrian Mole. Adrian Mole. The Secret Diaries of Adrian Mole by Sue Townsend. Yeah, it's just this sort of 
torturous uh, inner monologue of this boy who could just really quite nice and sweet. And <laughs> <laughs> um, the New York Times says that Miss Moran goes out of her way at the start of How to Build a Girl to make it clear that this is a work of fiction. <laughs> Yet Johanna's story isn't so far from the author's own. She's often compared to Tina Fey and Lena Dunham. So she certainly has a very honest voice and a you know, even though it's fiction, mm-hmm. it's just a great way to get you launched into what's going on in this girl's head. I mean, obviously, she's concerned about whether things are right yes. <laughs> in this particular instant. <laughs> and she does get you from the first page, you know, she knows how to get you. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that TV series called Goodness Gracious Me? I remember it, snippets and visuals, but I don't think I can even remember who was in it. There's a bunch of actors from the UK mm-hmm. and they were obviously of Indian heritage. They had lots of different skits and they played different characters and they were just hilarious for me. Um, the most famous sketch that everyone remembers is this guy who was constantly going on dates but he's always saying the wrong thing. <laughs> so people are always like throwing wine in his face and he's going, mm-hmm. check please. <laughs> check please. <laughs> yes. Uh, why don't we skip dessert and get out of here? Why? What have you got in mind? Nothing. It's just that you're already quite fat, innit? <laughs> Check, please. <laughs> so you must all be models, right? <laughs> what makes you say that? Well, because you're all pretty thick, innit? <laughs> Check, please. No, I, I really respect you. Yeah? Well, you're a young, educated, professional Asian woman who, who's broken away from all those old, traditional gender roles. Thank you. And you got great tits and all. <laughs> Check, please. <laughs> you're funny. Oh. You know, you've got a terrific sense of humour. Oh, thank you. Well, I suppose it's just as well, you being so ugly and all. <laughs> Please. Usually it happens after, you know, somebody throws a glass of wine in his face. <laughs> but sometimes he'll just say something so bad and then he'll automatically go, check please. Because he knows <laughs> the date is I've over. Done, done it. <laughs> yes. Okay, so Goodness Gracious Me was created. It played on BBC One. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the creators are Sanjeev Baskar, Mira Shal, Anil Gupta, Kulvinda Gir, Nina Wadia and Connie Hook. So these were some of the, the cast members. If you can, you know, you should look out for the box set or go check it out on YouTube. There are some clips there, definitely. They like to spoof Indian families in the UK. Mm-hmm. For, so another one uh, which I remember is, you know, how the British people go, oh, let's go go get ourselves a curry. <laughs> let's go get an Indian, you know, like an Indian dinner. Yeah. So this Indian family, like, oh, let's go get some English. <laughs> and then while they're there, they're talking about, you know, how, oh, I'm, I'm really quite apprehensive because every time I go for an English, I get the runs. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then they talk about typical Asian parents. There's this mm. one grandmother who puts one small aubergine in everything that she cooks. <laughs> so if you miss that, then Mira Shao, one of the creators, 
she's an author now and she's written a few books. But uh, one of the first that she wrote was in 1996 and it was called Anita and Me about nine-year-old Mina who can't wait to grow up and break free from her parents. But as the daughter of the only Punjabi family in the mining village of Tollington, her daily struggle for independence is different from most. She wants fish fingers and chips, not chapati and dal. And she wants an English Christmas, not Diwali, you know. And uh, she's totally besotted by this cool girl, Anita Rutter, and her gang of nine-year-old gangsters. We reached Mr. Ormerod's shop and stopped outside the window. The display had been the same for years. A huge cardboard cutout of a Marmite jar dominated the space, bleached on one side where the sun had caught it. The player's capstan cigarette display behind it featuring a saturnine sailor's face in the centre of a life belt. A few days earlier, Anita Rutter had told me that this sailor was in fact her father. I had been in my usual spot outside Ormerod's window having a visual affair with his sweet display when she had sauntered past arm in arm with her two regular cohorts, Sherry, who lived at Dale End Farm, and Fat Sally. As they came nearer, they began exchanging excited stage whispers and clumsy dead-arm punches. I had instinctively stiffened and busied myself with reading the small print on the Marmite jar, my heart unaccountably flipping like a fish. Anita stopped and looked me up and down, her top lip beginning to rise. She pointed at the player's capstan, Sailor, and said, That's my dad, that is. He was in the Navy. He got medals for blowing up the Jerry's like. I wondered why he had taken a particular dislike for men with this name. But before I could ask, Sherry and Fat Sally burst into side-hugging laughter. Only the big girls laughed in this way, malicious cackles which hinted at exclusivity and the forbidden. I knew they were all at senior school. I had seen them round the village in their overlarge uniforms, customised with badges and cropped-off ties. I was nine but felt three and a half as this particular day Mama had one of her you-always-look-like-a-heathen moods and had forced me into a dinky pleated dress which, despite my efforts at ripping and rolling in mud, still contained enough frills and flowers to give me the appearance of a bad-tempered doily. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Now, there's another part as well where she's trying to be cool and um, she's in a position where she's supposed to comfort Anita. So this is a very coveted position for her, right? (laughs) But then um, Anita takes to it in in a bad way and then sort of like challenges her and then she goes like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? And so, yeah, this is, you know, sort of a bit of her internal monologue. It was her way, I decided, of asking me to look after Anita after she had gone. I then did something I had never done before, swept away by a surge of protective tenderness. I put my arm around Anita and kissed her, whispering, Sorry, Nita, I really am. She pushed me away so violently that I almost fell off the swing. What's up with you? Anita shouted, wiping her cheek cheek furiously. I'm your Leslie, your summit. (laughs) What's a Leslie? I asked. Anita rolled her eyes and sighed. You don't know nothing, do ya? I know you won't be getting a bloody pony now, I thought. But you don't know about what a virgin is either. She continued, rattling the swing absentmindedly. Yes, I do, I said. At least I knew that Jesus' mother was one. So am you then? What? I asked suspiciously. Am you a virgin then? Anita's eyes glittered dangerously. 
I swallowed a marble of danger. I was supposed to be looking after her. I didn't understand how she managed to turn the table so quickly. I racked my brains furiously to think of what I and Mary, mother of the King of Kings, might have in common. She was not from England anyhow, that might be a clue, but then she was much older than me, she rode a donkey, she was married, no obvious connections there. I tried to recall how Anita had said virgin, did it sound like something you wanted to become, or a dreadful disease you would be ashamed to have? I took a gamble, Mary did give birth to someone pretty important, therefore virgins could not all be that bad. Yeah, I am one actually, I said confidently. Anita shrugged. Me too, she said, but not for long, eh? She winked at me and giggled slyly. I laughed back wittily, resolving to ask Papa about it when I got home. <laughs> <laughs> it's just adorable. And then it goes on. Next chapter, Papa dropped the spoon he was holding. <laughs> oh, clash lovely. of cultures. Yeah, clash of cultures. And, and navigating, you know, even if, if they were not from separate cultures, navigating that sort of what's cool and what's not and how do I answer this terrible terrible mm-hmm. question and playground bullies literally they're yeah. in the playground right now yeah. you know when you're given an in you know trying not to try not to freak out and and, and get Lose kicked it. out yeah <laughs> you know children can be so 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 scary quite brutal when a sunday kind of love returns tasha fusil reveals what awkward moments people have encountered in their lives and some advice on how to maneuver in situations like that before we get there this is teddy pendergrass with the whole town's laughing at me poor teddy won't you tell us all about it we'll be right back with more sunday kind of love right after this on bfm 89.9 lost it and I lost it had a love so real what a man can feel and I lost it and I lost it Welcome back to A Sunday Kind of Love, and this is the laughter episode. I'm Maya Tan. So Tasha Fusil put her kipo hat on and went around discovering what some of the most awkward situations folks have experienced. Also some tips to counter the next time you're faced with that awkward moment. Awkward moments. Those forced interactions and dreaded encounters that leave you feeling embarrassed. There was one time, like, I saw a group of people walking to a restaurant and I told my friend, hey, I know them, and I said, hi, and then my friend said, of course, they are my friends, I introduced you to the last party. Socially inept. Especially when you meet someone new and you don't know what to say, and then you've exhausted your basic five questions, what do you do, where you're from, and all, and then you're just, like, sitting there, and it's just cree, 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 and you don't know what to do. And emotionally scarred. I meet a lot of people that remember me, but I don't remember them. Quite often, people will come up to me, and they'll call me by my name, and uh, I just have to pretend I know them, you know. They're the moments that can ruin your day. When you like someone, like in college or whatever, and there's a class, and they have to hold a door, and so this girl is coming to the door, and you hold it for her for a really long time. This is far away, it's kind of walking and walking. Oh boy, this guy must really like me. He's holding the door for like a mi- how, you know, half a minute. And then you feel the dope after that. And then she passes by, you don't say anything. Shatter your confidence. Like when you want to give a high five because it was a good moment, but somebody else is also wanting to, and then they ignore your high five, and you're just like, yeah. And make you question your ability as a functioning member of society. So how do we deal with these uncomfortable pauses, long silences, and stiff conversations? 
we spoke to people about some everyday awkward scenarios to find out what we could learn from their unpleasant experiences. And the results were just as awkward as expected. Number one, when you wave or say hi, or in some extreme cases, hug someone that you thought you knew but you actually didn't. I would laugh very awkwardly and loudly and then introduce myself and um, try and move on from there. Well, actually, I'll just man up and say, I'm so sorry, I thank God the wrong person. I'll just continue pretending that I know the person. It's like, how is it going, you know? And then from there, I learn more about them and eventually I really get to know them. And you say to them, that was a nice hug, huh? Uh, That's pretty nice. Or you actually continue to say as if you knew them, but they're the one who actually doesn't know you. Like, so you just perpetuate the lie to a point that's no return. I just keep going. I just go with it. I run with it. Even at that point of, you know, realization that I have no idea who this person is, I continue the conversation and then make a quick, swift exit. Number two, when there's three of you, but the only person you had in common was that one mutual friend and they had to go away. So if there's a drink or a meal in front of us, uh, we could talk about that and hopefully start finding mutual ground somewhere. Um, I would at least stay through whatever we're nursing. So if there's a drink or a meal, I would at least stay through that before kind of making excuses if it's gone poorly. I'll probably wait for like two minutes of silence and then I'll probably start by, uh, so what are you having for dinner or you know, what's for dessert? Uh, and then just continue from there. If like there, there are no conversations, they probably just keep quiet for the rest of the night and wait for your friends to come back. <laughs> uh, it actually happened to me uh, fairly recently. And what I did was I just continued the conversation. I hung out with this person for at least another hour. Um, also, it helped that this person was a conversationalist. Uh, we could talk about music. We could talk about the country. We could talk about different things. If you see that person, you know, a bit awkward or you know, there's silences and all, then I'll just whip out my smartphone and you know, just tell them, like, "Excuse me, I just got." to, you know, reply this really important email on something, and yeah. It's easier if they're attractive, then the conversation flows to some sort of uh, dark rabbit hole of trying to impress somebody. So that is usually what gets you out. Or, the alternative is to ask them, hey, I can't remember the last time we met, what was that, what was that thing that we, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's the one. I take them for a movie, because, you know, two and a half hours, you're quiet, You don't have to talk. And then after the movie, you've got something to talk about. Number three, when you're opening the door for someone who is actually really quite far away. And it's too late for you to let go of the door, so you have no choice but to stand and wait. I wait, um, and then I get really angry if they don't thank me. In some cases, uh, I would actually wait. I mean, if it's a few few minutes, like it's like a few seconds, a few steps short, I'd wait. Uh, but if it's slightly longer, I'll be like, you know, you can't do anything. You just have to, you know, I think the person knows that you meant well, uh, that you can't do it, and that's fine. Again, if they're attractive, you most likely will hold it for a bit longer. Or if they're elderly. I like holding the door for elderly people because it makes me feel good. Uh, if I have to hold the door for an inordinate amount of time before you know someone actually comes up, I usually just go, thank you very much, sir, I'm here at your service. What do I do then? I'll just stand and wait and smile. And again, it depends on the other person. If the person just walks right through me, and I'll be like, bitch. <laughs> if, not, if not, I'll just... If the person smiles and says thank you, I'll say, you're welcome, and just get over it. Number four. When you bump into someone you know but not that well and you're not sure how to greet them, do you go for a handshake, a hug, or the Malaysian slash French cheek kisses? Or do you just wave? I always wave. 
Um, I smile, uh, wait for engagement. If nothing happens, then I move on. Um, if not, usually a wave if I don't know somebody that well. Otherwise, it's just too much, too much human contact. Uh, for someone I don't know well, I generally go with uh, a handshake because that's probably a bit more formal and that keeps us at a distance. Um, in some cases, yes, the person actually, I wait for that person to open themselves up. So when they do open themselves up, you know that it's for a hug and that's fine, yes. Oh, yeah, this is tough because you have the option, Yeah, you have many options. You have the salam, you have the double cheek combo, you have the salam double cheek combo. And there's also the, you know, is it a family friend where the first point of reference is a family member or that you've had a personal interaction via a third party? And there are all sorts of ways you can break this down, but generally the double cheek combo is, you know, pretty safe. In most circles, actually, depending if they're married and then maybe it's not so good. I think the handshake, handshake's a little too impersonal because the handshake might be offensive in situations like that. Let's say it's from, you know, male to male, then you can immediately go in for the bro hug. They, you, you bring him in, tap him in the back twice, and good to go. Number five, you're going for the high five, but you get left hanging. Oh, uh, I usually shame them and say, don't leave a sister hanging. And yeah, that tends to work. Oh yeah, sure, that happens with my niece and my nephew. It happens all the time. I'm like, high five, and then they're like, just like walk away, and I'm like, okay. I high five my other hand. Number six, when someone comes up to you and says hi but you can't remember their name or you have no idea who they are. So that happens a lot. Um, I usually smile. Um, I smile, I say hello. I ask them how they've been. And from there, I try to glean clues as to who they are. And if that still doesn't work out, hopefully they think I've been polite by asking how they've been. I'll introduce my friend. What if you don't have a friend? Um, I don't know, I can't save myself in that situation. Oh, it happens a lot. What I normally do is let the conversation run, and then at some point of time in the conversation go like, when was the last time we met? And then I will get some sort of an inclination when that happens, and then you can put two and two together, and then I go, okay. Uh, in extreme cases, I can. I've, there's actually happened where I couldn't remember the person at all, and I have to be honest and say, you know, I'm really sorry, and you know, I apologize, but I can't recall where we met or how we met, and your name, and you know, could you remind me? And yeah, so it has happened. Okay, so this happens to me all the time. Uh, it depends. Sometimes if people come to me and blatantly ask me, you don't remember who I am, is it? I've reached that stage where I'm just honest and go, no, I'm sorry, auntie, I don't remember you. Yes. But otherwise, dude, chief, buddy, chap, all acceptable terms. And then you have to be armed with a selection of questions that will give you hints as to who these people are. And then hopefully your brain can actually figure it out. Things like, um, how's work going? You know, and then, then they'll, they'll give a hint, maybe. As long as they don't speak in ambiguities. Lah. So they'll give a hint as how's work going. And then um, and you may, risking, it's not good asking about wives or significant others. That's a risk. But the work question, uh, the what have you been up to lately? So if they're like, ah, oh, you know, I was just skiing in Japan. Then you know, you kind of know which level of friendship they're in. Yeah, so you can work it out. Number seven. When you're getting a haircut and you're not sure if you're supposed to engage in some small talk with your hairstylist. I bring a book. For the most times, I do talk to them. Usually the first question is like, how long have you done this? Just to be sure that the person knows how to cut my hair. Because I, you know, I have short hair, so it's really painful if they cut an extra inch. And then if the person is chatty, then we can continue. But if it's not, then just going to read the magazine. Yes, my hairstylist has the best gossip in the world. So there's no better person to talk politics with than the Indian barber and the taxi driver. 
It's a mask. You have to. What else you do? It's just, it's just rude. There's someone touching your head. The least you can do is make conversation, right? Number eight. When you're in the elevator with someone you don't know that well, like a co-worker you never usually speak to, or that neighbor you see around but you've never formally met. I say good morning, and then I don't make small talk. Yeah, just I'll just you know wait for my floor and get out as fast as I can. <laughs> I mean, if it's someone I work with but I'm not very close to, I try to talk to them and make conversation because I I do have a common ground in terms of work, so that's where conversation starts. But if it's someone else, I probably just ask like you know talk about the weather. You can always talk about the haze in Malaysia. It's always about the haze. You just complain about the haze. Everybody's like. Yeah, all the traffic jam, especially when you're coming out to the parking and you're both walking towards your car, and you're like, oh gosh, there's traffic jam. There's no traffic jam, but oh gosh, you know, the traffic jam was probably worse two hours ago. So you're like, can't always talk about stuff. I actually have conversations with strangers in elevators too. I have no problems. Um, you can usually find something to talk about. So for instance, when I live in Singapore, uh, a lot of my Singaporean neighbours will have to be taking their dogs in the morning for a walk. So I usually talk to the dogs. And then inevitably, they will look at me and go like, oh, you know, where are you from? You know, are you new? And then I have to go like, I'm Malaysian. So, because Singaporeans don't talk to each other. <laughs> Sorry, it's happened too many times before. Uh, ooh, I pretend that I'm the only one in the lift. I don't see no wrong in that. <laughs> I usually say hi. Yeah, even if it's a co-worker I don't usually speak to, actually an elevator is a good place to start a relationship because you're in a confined space, you've got nothing else to do, you have to be polite, and who knows, you might learn something new about that individual that you never knew before. Now, let me tell you, farting in an elevator, however, also awkward situation, very easy solution. If you're in a crowded elevator and it's a quiet one, you just kind of turn and look at the person next to you and just be like, I can't believe you just did that. If it is unfortunately a loud one, best thing to do is just go, yeah, it was me. So the conclusion is, there really isn't much you can do to be rid of those uncomfortable moments. Just accept that it happens, embrace it, and be one with it. We've come to the end of another episode of A Sunday Kind of Love with me, Maya Tan, Tasha Fusil and our resident couch potato, Christina Oro. Before we go, this is The Humour of the Situation by The Bare Naked Ladies. You've been listening to A Sunday Kind of Love. Laugh a lot this Sunday. Heck, laugh a lot every day. This is Maya Tan, wishing you a great week ahead. BFM 89.9. When you walked in, I said with a grin We were just talking about you We all had to lie because you would cry if you knew we were laughing at you chill in the momentary long before the band begins to play. There's an overwhelming stench about fire. Come on now, now, come on now, now. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.